morning. Romans 11, um, 25 through 36. Lest you be wise in your own sight, I do not want you to be unaware of this mystery, brothers. A partial hardening has come upon Israel until the fullness of the Gentiles has come in. And in this way, all Israel will be saved. As it is written, the deliverer will come from Zion. He will banish ungodliness from Jacob. And this will be my covenant with them when I take away their sins. As regards the gospel, they are enemies for your sake. But as regards election, they are beloved for the sake of their forefathers. For the gifts and the calling of God are irrevocable. For just as you were at one time disobedient to God, but have now received mercy because of their disobedience, so they too have now been disobedient in order that by the mercy shown to you that they also may now receive mercy. For God has consigned all to disobedience, that he may have mercy on all. Oh, the depth of the riches and wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments and how inscrutable his ways. For who has known the mind of the Lord, or who has been his counselor, or who has given a gift to him that he might be repaid? For from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be the glory forever. Amen. This is the very word of the Lord. If you notice verse 33 that text that Jenny just read for us, warns us, warns us from presuming to understand this God that we worship and his ways. But notice it also urges us to do just that, to plumb the depths of God's riches, his wisdom, and his knowledge. I asked our worship team to uh, use the song, to have us sing the song, How Deep the Father's Love for Us, because in that last verse, there's an interesting paradox. I will not boast in anything. No gifts, no power, no wisdom. And then what's it say? But I will boast in Jesus Christ, his death and resurrection. The gospel that Paul is eager to explain to reveal to us in the letter to the Romans is this kind of a paradox. It is deep but knowable, mysterious yet revealed. And this morning, I want us to consider as we come to the end of Romans chapter 11 that this gospel that Paul preached, the gospel of Jesus Christ, makes known to us, it reveals to us the depths of God's mercy. And it does so in such a way that it silences all pride in his chosen people. The gospel reveals the depths of God's mercy and does so in such a way that it silences the pride in his chosen people. In order for us to understand this point that the apostle is putting before us at the end of Romans 11. We need to consider this morning from these verses that the need for us to first be aware of what Paul calls a mystery. Basically to know this mystery, to be aware of it. Second, to be humbled by it. And then finally, to be astonished at the, at the mystery. Be aware of the mystery This is what Paul wants for all of God's people. Be humbled 
by this mystery. And then last, be astonished. Be astonished at the mystery. So we begin with this mystery, the fact that this mystery has been made known to us. The Bible comes to us with a revelation, an explanation of a mystery. In Paul's letters, he often refers to the mystery of God, the revelation or the unveiling of God's secret plan. What is God up to? What is God all about? What's he doing? This mysterious God made known to us in the Bible has made some things plain to us. There's some things we should know. We ought to know. God's intention is for you to know. He has unveiled this secret plan over and over again. When Paul refers to um, the mystery of God, and Romans 11 is not the only place he does so, we find that the mystery is made plain. It's unveiled. It's revealed in the gospel of Jesus. Now that Messiah has come and accomplished what he set out to do, namely, let's be clear about it, the inauguration, the establishment of God's long-awaited kingdom on earth, now that Jesus has done that, now that he has fulfilled that mission, we are in a place to see what it is that God is doing in the present. Paul puts it like this here in Romans 11, verse 25. A partial hardening has come upon Israel until the fullness of the Gentiles has come in, and in this way, all Israel will be saved. You got it? In other words, God is doing now, right now, what he said he would do when Messiah comes. He is saving his people. He is delivering Israel. But, as God, we come to know, he's not doing it the way we probably would have expected. That's why Paul has to write Romans 9 through 11, three chapters that, if we're honest, have perplexed many Christians over the centuries. Israel as a whole had rejected Messiah, and so Paul argues a partial hardening has come upon the nation. Now, this hardening, when Paul uses this word, he remains by it the deliberate judgment of God, as verses 7 and 8 explained earlier in this chapter. It was this God who gave them a spirit of stupor, eyes that would not see, ears that would not hear, down to this very day. This hardening, like the hardening of Pharaoh's heart in the Old Testament, is not reversible. It is God's just judgment, his final judgment on the impenitent. But notice that Paul says a partial hardening has come. And the reason he says it's a partial hardening is because while it applies to the nation as a whole, it does not mean that every single person of Jewish ethnicity 
stands under this final irreversible judgment of God. God has always kept for himself a remnant within Israel. And this is why Paul, in Romans 10, can still pray to God for the salvation of his fellow Jews. But the mystery that is now revealed is that the partial hardening has come upon Israel. He says, notice next, until the fullness of the Gentiles has come in. Now we saw last week that Israel's rejection of her Messiah has thrown open the doors of salvation to the Gentiles. Romans 11, 11. Just as the salvation of the kingdom of God is already here, Jesus came and accomplished the mission he set out to do. He inaugurated the long-awaited kingdom of God. It is already here, but we know not yet come in its fullness. In the same way, the judgment of God, the final judgment of God is already here, though not yet in its final form. God's final judgment has already broken in, but it's not yet fully revealed. It has been, in this sense, postponed. And the reason that God has done that is clear. Because God is waiting. He's waiting for the fullness of the Gentiles to come in. Now, what exactly this fullness consists of, whether a certain number, however long it takes, or a certain length of time, however many come in, only God knows the answer to those questions. But whatever this fullness consists of, we must not be ignorant of the fact that this is what God has done in bringing in his kingdom in and through Messiah, in and through Jesus of Nazareth. His rejection by national Israel has resulted in the already of God's final judgment on the nation as a whole. But at the same time, he has made room for the nations, for non-Jews, to be brought in. That, of course, is good news for those of us who are non-Jews. We worship Israel's God because there has been a delay in the final, full revelation of God's judgment. Now, when the disciples of Jesus met him on the other side of his resurrection, they asked him, if you will remember in Acts 1-6, is this the time now? Surely now, Jesus, that you're the Messiah and you have risen from the dead. Surely now at this time, you're going to restore the kingdom to Israel. It's Acts 1-6. Surely now, Surely now that the end has come, you're going to stop all resistance to the long-awaited kingdom of God. What, What else is there to do? But Jesus replies with these words, Acts 1, verses 7 and 8. It is not for you to know times or seasons that the Father has fixed by his own authority, but you will receive power after the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, and in all Judea, and Samaria, and to the end of the earth. Do you see, Christian, what is going on? God, in a lavish display of mercy, has suspended 
the fullness of his kingdom and the fullness of his final judgment for one reason. So that the news about Messiah could spread to every place and every person on earth. And the reason that he has done that is because he had to do that. God made a promise and God would see to it that his promise was fulfilled. And the promise is what Paul says here in Romans 11, verse 26, the promise that all Israel will be saved. Now, these words in Romans eleven twenty six have caused great controversy for 2,000 years of Christian history. And this morning, I'm going to resolve all tension. I am going to solve this problem once and for all. I'm joking, of course. You may walk out of here and say, I'm not sure I agree with Ben's view. That's okay. But let's just be honest. These simple words in Romans 11:26, and in this way, all Israel will be saved, are the stuff of endless apocalyptic fantasies, and I think that's a massive mistake. If we've been following Paul's argument in Romans, and by the way, this is the reason. This is the reason that if any of this matters to you, if you're going to listen to me for however long I get till the clock runs out, I don't care about the clock. You know that. However long, like if you're going to do this and this matters at all, you've got to be tracking with everything we've been seeing for the last however many weeks. We're in week, I think, 28 of Romans. But at least Romans 9 through 11. Like what I'm about to say, will you'll be like, how did you get that? You will make no sense unless you've been tracking what I've been preaching all through Romans 9, 10, and 11. Because I think if you're following Paul's argument in Romans, it is clear what he means when he says all Israel, who he's referring to. We know that all Israel cannot mean every Jewish person with no exception. Because the hardening of the nation as a whole indicates that many will perish in unbelief. That's what the hardening is. And very few people think it means every Jewish person with no distinction will be saved. But we also can dismiss the idea for the very same reason that the hardening has come, that Paul means eventually the nation as a whole will convert to Christ. Sometime after the fullness of the Gentiles is complete, just before the return of Christ, I feel like I should bring up here some sort of end times chart that you've probably seen through your life and say, nope, I don't think he means that either. The hardening of Israel is not something that's going to be reversed. I don't think Paul expected that. In this way, all Israel will be saved does not mean that the nation as a whole will have some kind of great revival, will come to see Jesus as Messiah, and will, as a whole, convert. Now, many of us grew up believing that. A prevalent assumption in our churches has been that we should be expecting some kind of national revival of Israel before the return of Christ. But Paul has already made it clear in Romans that when he uses the word Israel, 
he doesn't always mean what you might think he means. Back in chapter 2, he said that Jewishness could not be defined only by one's ethnicity or physicality. It was as much a matter of the heart as anything. That's Romans 2.29. It's meant to raise eyebrows. But that's not all. In chapter 4, and especially in Romans 9, 6 through 9, Paul redefined the children of Abraham, excluding some of his biological descendants, but also including any, whether Jew or Gentile, who share in Abraham's faith. And in Galatians chapter 6, verse 16, it appears that Paul can refer to the entire Christian church as the Israel of God. Look it up. Galatians 6, 16. So I conclude then, see if you agree with me, that in Romans eleven twenty six, Paul is showing us how it is that God is doing what he has promised to do all along, in spite of the fact that national Israel has turned their back on their own Messiah. Nevertheless, God will be just. God will be justified. God will be shown to be righteous, that is, faithful to his promise. He will save all Israel. Not a single one of his chosen people will be lost. Not a single one. How will this happen? And Paul's answer is, not by replacing the original Israel but by radically transforming it. Transforming Israel in and through her own Messiah. The result in this transformation is that, as one commentator says, Israel is now, as was always promised, both less and more than the physical family of Abraham. Less because it excludes many of Abraham's biological descendants, as Romans 9 explained, but more because it includes multitudes of wild olive shoots who nevertheless share Abraham's faith, as Romans 4 explained. Do you see? This is what God had said he would do all along, and he's keeping his promise. Now, You and I might become rather used to this sort of reasoning, but don't you see, when Paul wrote the letter to the Romans, he has to try to prove this case. He has to convince people that this is exactly what God has said he would do all along, and it's being played out right before your eyes. He wrote the letter to the Romans to argue the case and demonstrate that this is the gospel of Jesus. This is the good news of the kingdom of God that has broken in, into the present. That's why we see right here in verses 26 to 27, Paul is a faithful expositor. And we see in these two verses what we've seen throughout the last three chapters. Paul says, just look at your Bible. Look at your Bible. He appeals to the Old Testament for support of his argument. He cites here from Isaiah 59 and Isaiah 27 and the terms of the promised new covenant. Understanding the mystery means emphasizing at least as much as what is still to come, the profound realities of what has already happened now. 
in the past and what is therefore God is up to in the moment, in the present. The mystery that has been revealed is not revealed for speculation about the future, which inevitably leads to pride. It's made plain to us for celebration, which surprisingly, shockingly, leads to humility. Now, let's see how this works. If we understand the mystery, Christian, if you can, if you can somehow rehearse the Old Testament story, the story of Israel, and see how Jesus has brought the story to completion, to the promise that God had made along, if you could somehow get that in your mind, it will humble you. It will exclude all boasting, all pride. Now, there is always the danger, of course, of knowledge leading to pride. But when it comes to the gospel of Jesus, it's the opposite. Knowledge of the mystery, understanding the mystery, is the only way to true humility. Now, here in verse 25... The verse actually begins not as the ESV has it. The ESV begins with the phrase, lest you be wise in your own sight. But verse 25 actually begins in Greek with the the next phrase that the ESV translates. I do not want you to be unaware of this mystery. It actually begins with the word for. For I do not want you to be unaware of this mystery. In other words, if you're ignorant of the mystery, the danger will be pride. You'll become wise in your own sight. Did you hear that? If you remain ignorant of the mystery that God has plainly revealed in time and space, the result will be not humility but pride. On the other hand, the only way to eliminate pride and have true humility is you've got to know the mystery. You've got to understand the mystery. The word translated wise occurs in its verbal form back in verse 20. It's translated, do not become proud. And there we saw that to go the high-browed route is to put yourself at risk of being cut off from the Messiah and to come under the judgment of God. If you remain ignorant of what God has done and is now up to, this is a dangerous place to be because pride will be generated there. So Christians today, especially Gentile Christians, any of you out there? You need to keep before you like a pair of glasses through which you see everything, the mystery of God made plain in the gospel of Jesus. God's way in bringing all Israel to salvation, every single one of his chosen people, is, well, what what adjective should we use to describe it? It is at the same time simple but complex. Mysterious yet plainly revealed. We Christians claim to be at the place where we can look back and see what God has been up to, suspending final judgment until every single one of his elect, the fullness of the Gentile nations, as well as hopefully, prayerfully, an increasing number of Jews come in to the reshaped Israel, reconstituted around Israel's Messiah, in the terms of the long-awaited and long-foretold new covenant. And God is the one, make no mistake, who is seeing to it that all Israel is brought in, 
God is the one who is doing the saving. It's nothing but sheer mercy and grace, but it is, it's a severe mercy or a ruthless grace. If we understand this gospel, here's what will happen. We will both be moved to a shameless celebration and worship of God without one shred of self-confident boast lingering in the heart. That's what we're trying to get to. We will not worship Jesus with a reservation that is excused by a pretense of humility. But neither will we disguise our self-righteousness by some extravagance meant to make more of us than the deliverer who came to take away our sins. Do you see the dilemma? We want to have shameless boast in Christ, full of humility, and not hide this boast in some kind of false humility that is reserved. Not going to make too much of Jesus. How do we do this? This is the mystery of God revealed in the gospel of Jesus that keeps us in this kind of worshipful humility that doesn't refuse to boast in Jesus. It's this gospel, by the way, that also helps us to see other people rightly. That is the way God sees them. And this too is simple yet complex. We read in verse 28, as regards the gospel, they are enemies for your sake. But as regards election, they are beloved for the sake of their forefathers. You see, simple but complex. In other words, Paul's saying to Gentile Christians, those Jews who are not yet believing, they're in a seriously dangerous place. Make no mistake. They, like all who oppose Jesus, are enemies of the gospel. They find themselves under the condemnation of his wrath. No one who opposes God will be spared, regardless of their Jewish ancestry. And by the way, plenty in the New Testament is written to say the same to you, Gentile Christian. Regardless of your Christian heritage, you too, if you oppose Messiah Jesus, will be cut off. You will be an enemy of the gospel. But at the same time, Gentile Christians must remember that the enemies of the gospel are not their enemies. Look what he says. Ironically, he says, they are enemies of the gospel for your sake. Now, it was Israel's opposition to the gospel that has opened a door of welcome to multitude of Gentiles like you and me who once were enemies of God. Don't you see? So we must view these enemies of the gospel, whether Jewish or Gentile, not as our, as our enemies. We must view them as how? Beloved. Beloved by God. And if you struggle with that, just all you have to do is remember that is exactly how God treated you. Some of us have forgotten. It was while we were enemies. 
we were reconciled to God by the death of his son, Romans 5.10. We sang earlier, he died for me while I was sinning. That catch your attention? Like when you were in the very act of rebellion against him, he loved you. He gave his life for you. God, this God looks down on his enemies and when he does so, he doesn't look down with hatred. He looks at them with love. You must do the same for the enemies of the gospel. This is how he still looks upon unbelieving Israel to this day, Paul says. After all, they are, of course, uniquely tied to the people of God that he elected for himself. Unbelieving Israel, even to this day, Paul says, remains a picture of the simple yet complex reality of the gospel. Their rejection of Messiah is as serious as it sounds. They are, in that sense, enemies of God's gospel. But their connection to Israel is not thereby severed and hope for them remains because, as verse 29 says, the gifts and calling of God are irrevocable. God has not taken away from Israel the gifts that he described in Romans 9, 4, and 5. He has brought them to fruition. They are available to all in Christ. And God has also not changed his mind about those that he has called justified and glorified. God is in the business of reconciling enemies to himself. And this business of God is open to all Jew and Gentile alike. Again, what we are reading here at the end of Romans 11 is given to help us keep our balance between Christian boasting and godless pride. While God has done a great thing, indeed a new thing, God himself has never changed. His love for his people, even unbelieving Israel, is just as true now as it has always been. God has not revoked anything that he gave to Israel. Rather, in the gospel of Jesus, he has brought it all to completion. So what this means for you and me is rehearsed again in verses 30 to 31. It's basically a repeat of the previous two verses We remember what God did for us when we were his enemies. What did he do? Pour out wrath or pour out mercy? He poured out his mercy. He poured out his love. When we were disobedient, God showed us mercy. Paradoxically, because of Israel's disobedience. And now God intends to do something similar for unbelieving Jews. He wants them to receive mercy by the mercy that he's shown to you and me. You got it? You got this all straight? Make all sense in your mind? Well, maybe a story will help. In Luke 14, Jesus tells a parable of a man who hosted a lavish banquet and he invited many to come. Send out the invitations. I'm preparing a feast. Huge banquet like you've never gone to before. Nevertheless, Jesus in the parable says that those who were invited one by one begin to make excuses. I I can't come. And you're supposed to say, what excuse could you make that's better than going to the banquet? 
But one by one, they begin to make excuses. And if we're honest, Christian, how foolish are our excuses for not accepting the invitation to receive God's good and gracious gifts? I'm avoiding a soapbox right now. Just saying. But this is what we do, don't we? God is throwing a feast for us, and we say, huh, well, i got something else i got to do today. Yeah. The story goes on. The host became angry. He sent his servant out to bring in the poor and the crippled and the blind and the lame. By the way, in the story, guess who that is? That's us. The invitees, the nation of Israel, making excuses. I will not have it. I will not come to the party. And you better thank God that they said no. Because you crippled, blind, lame, you got in. Story's not done. Even after that, the servant says, we did that. And there's still room. At the table for more guests. So the host said to his servant, go out to the highways and hedges and compel people to come in that my house may be filled. The original invitees would not come to the feast. They would not get a taste of this great banquet. But at the same time, the host makes sure that every seat is filled. And Jesus said, this parable is what the kingdom of God is like. Or in the words of Romans 11.32 in our text today, here's what God has done. God has consigned all to disobedience, Jew and Gentile alike. Why? So he can have mercy on all. Every person who sits at that banquet feast of the kingdom of God will know that the only reason they are there is lavish mercy of God. A mercy that occurs at the very same time that God in righteous judgment pours out his wrath on all who have refused his mercy. You see it? At the same time, kindness and severity... This is the complexity of the gospel, but it is a gospel that silences all pride, all pride. And when it comes to the gospel, when it comes to the great story of the Bible, you can, of course, explain it in a few different ways. Every single one of you is a member of Crosstown. You sat before the elders and we said, what is the gospel? And you gave an explanation. And there's different ways of doing this. But now that we've come to the end of Romans 11, perhaps we should insist that the story must be told as Israel's story. It must be told as Israel's story. If you want to understand what God has been up to, if you want to understand the gospel, and if you want to understand the gospel in such a way that all boasting is gone, then you have to see what God's activity has meant for you and for me. And we have to tell the story in such a way as to emphasize the simultaneous kindness and severity of God. This is who God is. Not a split personality, not some Jekyll and Hyde. But neither is this God the God of some fanciful, dispassionate dispenser of every whim and wish that you hope to get from him. 
we come to know who God is as we see his character revealed in the story, in Israel's story. And when we see who God is, when we start to get a glimpse of the simple yet complex mystery of God, there's nothing left for us to do but like standing before some great, beautiful picture in creation to be amazed. We went down this week, quick trip to Galveston, Texas. I hadn't been there in, I think, 20 years. Last time I was there, I was like, why does anybody come to this beach? But they've cleaned it up. It was amazing. And I, I don't, I'm, I'm, a, I'm, an, I'm an ocean person. I know it's not an ocean, but I'm an ocean person more than a mountain person, but this works either way. You stand before the waters of the ocean and what do you do? What do you do? You just, you better, well, you better do something. You better take it in. I don't know what that means. It was the day before we were leaving. It was the last, no, it was the day we were leaving. The last day, the boys were in the freezing cold water. I, I wouldn't get in, but they, there they were just having a great time. And, uh, and I thought to myself, I, I gotta, I'm about to go back to landlocked Oklahoma. I got to do something. And, and so what I, you know what I did? I just looked. And I tried to feel the, the, the wind coming in. I tried to listen to the waves crashing. And I tried to imagine how awesome is this picture. Anybody ready to go back to the beach with me? Okay, the mountains. Controversy in the church today. If you begin to get a glimpse of the mercy of God revealed in his gospel, listen, it'll do something to you. It has to do something to you. If you can stand before the roaring waters of the ocean and not be moved, something's wrong with you. Something's wrong with you. And if you can stand before this gospel and the God revealed in it and not be moved, I fear for your soul. You see, the way that God is bringing all Israel, all of his chosen people to salvation is by mercy. Pure mercy. It's true of us Gentiles. We should know this. We were so far from him and his covenant. And yet Ephesians 2.13 says, you've been brought near by the blood of Christ. You should know that. But it's just as true for any believing Jew who as a descendant of ethnic Israel became imprisoned, Paul says here, to disobedience. That's a horrifying picture, but God did it so that should any Jew come to believe in Jesus as Messiah and Lord, it would become plain that their salvation is just as much a matter of God's mercy as it is for you and me. And if this is, in fact, who God is, if this is, in fact, what God has done, then what, what are we going to do? What are we going to do? The only thing that Paul can do is to step back be astonished. Just 
Just try to take it in for a moment, Christian. Try. Would you just try? Would you just stand before the ocean and just let, let the, close your eyes and feel. Open your eyes and see. Listen and hear the waves, the birds. Step on the shell on the beach and imagine who this God is. The only thing Paul can do is he steps back, verse 33, and he's astonished. He says, oh, the depth of the riches and wisdom and knowledge of God. So surely it is right for me to ask you, professing Christian, does this gospel have that kind of an impact on you and me? Does it? I fear that we so too quickly lose our awe of how history has played out. The history the Bible reveals is not just a linear progression of events. It's the detailed precision of a sovereign God. If the gospel of Jesus is true, if it's true, then where we stand is at the end or the climax of history. That's not to say that there might not be decades, centuries, or even millennia still ahead of us. I mean, we are believers in Jesus. We believe in eternity. So I don't need a time piece, how long God has. What we do, if this is where we are, if the gospel of Jesus is true, then we need to be far more mesmerized, not by prophecy conferences and endless speculations about the future, We need to be more mesmerized by the gospel reality that's already been revealed in Jesus. When you're at the end, you spend most of your energy looking back. If we're Christians, that's what we should be doing. We look back and we see what God has done is exactly what he said he would do. He is saving Israel. And you know what that means? It means he's saving the world. It means God is putting everything back together again. This world that he made, Genesis 1, it is very good. God is interested in restoring this world. And he's doing it right now in saving his people. Romans 8 told us this. He's putting it all back together again. And the way God is doing it is infinitely rich in grace and wisdom and knowledge. Paul concludes by citing from two more Old Testament passages, Isaiah 40, verse 13, which basically says, if you propose to think that you have a wiser way to put it all back together again, who are you before this kind of God? How could you have thought this up? How could you have so meticulously planned and then made sure everything went exactly according to plan? How could you have done it? Then he cites from Job 41, verse 11. You remember this story, Job. And if you think that somehow you could have received a better world from God than the world that he has freely given to you by grace... You do not understand that the grace of God is far richer than any reward you could ever achieve from him. You see, if God is this God, if the true God is the God of Israel, the God revealed to us in the Bible, then we should enjoy him as such. He is a gift to us 
And if we enjoy him, the ramifications for your everyday life are endless. But it begins here. Orthodoxy, right belief about the story, the gospel of Jesus must lead us to doxology. It has to lead us to praise. You stand before this God like the roaring waters of the ocean. You simply have to be amazed. But Paul's doxology here at the end of Romans 11, notice it's not the end of the letter. He could have just said amen and Romans could have ended right here. It doesn't. You know why? Because doxology, praise to God that comes off of orthodoxy, who God is and what he has done in history, in time and space, it necessarily leads to orthopraxy. It necessarily leads to the way we're supposed to live as citizens of the kingdom of God. And guess what you're going to find now when you turn to the next chapter? Guess what you're going to find? Here is now how we must live. Not because God is mad at you and you better measure up or he's going to squash you. That's just the wrong way to see it. You just don't understand the story. If you understand the story, if you see your place in the roaring waters of the mercy of God, your life will be completely transformed. When we actually, what if we actually lived by the reality of God, this God, the God that we come to know best in the gospel of Jesus? What if we truly believed, Christian, that the story has reached its climax in the coming of Jesus and the long-awaited promised kingdom of God has been inaugurated and the new creation has begun? What if we actually believed it? How would the depths of God's mysterious mercy transform your life? Pastor John's going to show us next week. Let's pray together.